This is the Yada Yada Podcast, where we get to the heart of the Christian sexual ethic with biblical truths and real talk about sex, purity, and relationships. We're your hosts, Ashley and Amber from Across My Heart Ministries. Welcome to episode seven of the Yada Yada Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about sexuality and our emotional health. I thought a fun way to start this episode would be to take a little walk down memory lane. That's always fun. (laughs) Because uh, the truth is that from the time we're young, we realize that um, we were created to love and be loved. Yeah. And every single person, regardless of if you're single or you're married or you ever want or desire to get married, has a desire to be loved. Mm-hmm. We are we're created for companionship. Yep. And that's part of what it means to be human, mm-hmm. to experience those relationships with one another, not to live in isolation. So when we're little, this can often manifest itself in um, crushes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I can remember my very first crush. Um, Me too. I remember too. Maybe it was my maybe it was my second crush, but it was I remember his name was Joey and it was the first grade. I must have a thing for Joe's because my husband's name's Joey. <laughs> and your first crush was my, Joey. Fr- my, or, my <laughs> husband's name's not Joey. My husband's name <laughs> the correction. If he listens to this, he's gonna be like, um, excuse me. His name is Joseph. Joseph. <laughs> not Joe, not Joey, Joseph. Actually, some of his buddies call him Joe. I think they call him Joe. At his workplace, too, because it's just, like, easier. But when I first met him, he insisted that it was Joseph. It was just, yeah, very funny. So I still call him Joseph, and it's weird to me. If anyone... Yeah, I call him Joseph as well. Yeah. And he, so does my husband. He preferred his full name back in high school when we first met. So anyway, Joe, Joseph, Joey, uh, it must it must be my favorite name. Because I, I had this crush on this little boy. And um, I remember thinking... Um, you know, like any first grader, like the things that that attracted me to him were like, oh, he's funny. He's the class clown. And, you know, he has lanky arms and a goofy smile. And, <laughs> like those are endearing traits at that age. And my parents, even in first grade, you know, taught me better than to be chasing after boys. Mm. And so he was he was the one that was chasing after me w- with scissors. Like he would actually run around the school desk and pretend that he was going to cut my hair. That's a little frightening. <laughs> I, it's first grade way that boys and girls tease each other must be. My grandma or our grandma was a volunteer at the library that year. So she knew all about the classmates. The popular girl, the naughty boys, the little girl who Peter pants because a librarian wouldn't let her use the bathroom. Oh, yeah. I remember that. Grandma knew it all. She had the latest scoop. So one day I actually told grandma about my crush to see if she approved and i can still remember her reaction she said oh joey are you like him hmm well he's a nice boy but you know he picks his boogers that eats them don't you <laughs> oh grandma <laughs> i know gotta love grandma it was I, I was not about to fall in love with the nose pickers so um let's just say that was the shortest crush in the history of crushes but it's just crazy to me to think about how, from even a young age, our hearts uh, long for love. Do you remember who your first crush was? Oh, yeah. Zach. 
in kindergarten. And that, that wasn't the shortest lip crush. I feel like you liked Zach until like second grade. Oh, yeah. Well, I liked him all of kindergarten. And then we weren't in the f- in the same class in first grade. Oh. And that was like devastating to me because I remember he was in the other class and it was just, uh, it, it was heartbroken. There's no way. That I kind actually, of a long distance relationship I just could not He was across the hall. Just we saw each other at recess, but it just wasn't enough. <laughs> uh, I don't actually remember who my crush was in first grade. I don't actually think, I think I like went or like tried out crushes on a couple other You're boys like, but nothing ever that. yeah nothing ever stuck because Zach had declared his love for me in kindergarten he was going to marry me he told the whole class he was going to marry oh me oh my god so yeah he wasn't afraid wow i remember he like, wasn't chasing you with scissors no he wasn't he was cutting right to the chase was, yes and i remember still standing at the at the bathroom sink and and mom like helping me get ready for a ba- for bed and i remember telling her how how uh, Zach told me that he was he was gonna, gonna marry, marry you. me, or he told everyone that he was gonna marry was me. Was it like complete with a ring pop proposal and everything? No, it was just more of like a declaration. Just like just so you know, everybody. Yeah, and then whenever we played like house at recess and stuff, like we always had to be the mom and dad, and it just was. <laughs> it was it was it was <laughs> cute, but we were in the same. Actually, I don't think we were in the same class again until. Th- fourth grade and i definitely did revisit that crush in fourth grade okay so that's how it went it was the re the reunion crush uh-huh. yeah after uh after your years of heart after our years of being just long across distance the hall. separation well it sounds like from the story you know this goes both ways little girls and little boys for as long as they can remember you know have this desire to be loved and maybe it's not in this romantic way um like i said maybe You never want to get married, but we do all want to be loved. We all want companionship, friendship, someone who cares about us. Yeah, from the very beginning, God designed us for companionship. I mean, we talk a lot on this podcast and in our ministry about sex, and it's easy to think that sex is just this physical thing and then to ignore the bigger picture Mm. of our sexuality and how it affects our emotions and how it's really ingrained in our very nature. Um, Because sexual desire is often just conflated and compared to lust. Right. And we see it as this very, like, yeah, this is this very, like, lush, lustful thing to just be managed. Get those hormones under control. Yeah, managed and controlled. And we don't see how it can point us to that greater desire uh, for companionship. I mean, when it's not properly ordered and it's not surrendered unto God, then, yeah, I mean, it can definitely turn into lust. And lust always puts self first. It, it can't wait. It needs immediate gratification. But our sexual desire, as God created it, mm. that desire to know and be known to be loved can point us towards companionship relationships and yeah deep relationship with others and obviously deep relationship with a spouse Mm -hmm. and ultimately a deep relationship with god Mm -hmm. and so this this desire for that that knowing that being known that that intimacy um is it, it expands a conversation of sexuality far beyond getting those raging hormones under control. Yep, the physical act of sex. And I think that that's something we have really missed 
in our sexual education in America. Mm. Um, when I was doing a lot of research on this topic for our ministry, I came across some sex ed material that's being taught in Norway. And the name of their sex ed is actually called Long Live Love. Because they believe that our emotions are actually a symbol of, of maturity, um, that our, our bodies are preparing us for deep, intimate relationships that this sort of drawing of you know into relationships is kind of your your heart's way your body's way of preparing you as you grow and mature out of childhood Hmm. to have that capacity that's a really beautiful way to look at it instead of looking at it just like hormones you need to get under control yeah so you don't get into trouble (laughs) but instead preparing our teenagers to have deep, meaningful relationships that then they could foster as husbands and wives and mothers and fathers. Now, I'm sure there's things about this sex ed curriculum that I wouldn't agree with. Yeah. But I think that concept can be applied to the Christian ethic and education of how we teach um, sexuality to our children. Yeah, because our sexual desires, they draw us into relationships. Uh, And, you know, obviously, specifically those sexual desires are going to draw us into relationship with our future spouse someday and uh but that desire to know and be known and to be loved draws us into relationships in general right intimate deep meaningful yeah. relationships and it helps us to understand what it means to create to crave intimate oneness. Dr. Julie Slattery puts this really well. She writes, sexuality is a powerful picture of God's invitation to intimacy. Your greatest need for intimacy is to know the God who created you. Marriage and sexuality were always intended to teach us about intimacy with God. Mm. Yeah, that's a good quote. And like you said, we can see that from the very beginning, we were created for this type of companionship with Mm -hmm. others and with God. And so we see that displayed um, in no better place than the Garden of Eden. At the very beginning, when God created this, this world, the heavens and the earth, after each day of creation, he saw everything he'd made. And what did he say? He said, it's good. It's good. Yeah. But do you know what he said on the sixth day of creation after creating Adam? What did he say? It's not good. It's not good. Like what? He just created mankind in his own image. And he said it's not good. Like, does that even make sense? That's that's sort of like a. Well, that's not all the story, though. Exactly. <laughs> it kind of catches <laughs> you, trips you up. Uh, like, wait, God, why did you say this was not good? And it's because in Genesis 2.18, he gives us the answer. He says, it is not good for man to be alone. Hmm. I will make him a helper fit for him. And we can, you know, we can hyper-spiritualize this and we can be like, oh, but, you know, God was there in the garden and God can fill, God can fill all the voids that we have, like all those, those that that loneliness that we experience that relational companionship that we crave he's he's there for you god was and, and it's true god was there for adam and it's not that god isn't enough like we do need to have our foundation built 
on our relationship with God and that intimacy because if we don't understand that our identity comes from who God says we are and who God says he is, mm. then we're always looking for, you know, man to to affirm something in us or other relationships too. And we're we're really building our foundation on wavering wavering ground and things that can easily easily disappoint because yeah. that's just human. We we disappoint each other <laughs> because uh, we all have sin struggle. But I think that what God is is showing here is that when he says that it's not good for a man to be alone, it's not that we can't find satisfaction in him, mm. but that God created us for human, human companionship right. as well. To reflect him. Yes, to help the because yeah, in order to reflect him and to be able to reflect the Trinity, mm-hmm. because it says, "Let us make man in our image." There's that that plural language that mirrors a plural reality. We mm. need others. We need God, and we right. need that relationship with God. But we also were designed for community and companionship with. Others, God didn't design us to just solely be in relationship with Him, mm-hmm. but to also be in relationship with others. So we can better reflect His His image, the reality of the Trinity. I actually studied the Trinity in uh, my systematic theology class last year, and we dove into this concept of God as love—that God is love because He's triune, that He has always had someone to love, that he has been loving Father to Son, Holy Spirit from before the beginning of time. Hmm. That love is and should be directed towards something or someone. This isn't this isn't a this isn't a self-obsessed love. We don't worship a self-obsessed God. It'd be like Allah, the the God of the Muslims, you know, saying that he loved since the beginning. Well he would only have himself to be self-obsessed with, mm. to love himself. So he he can't be love, at least not an outward focused hmm. love. But we have a God who's triune, whose love is not self-obsessed, but is self-sacrificing. Hmm. A love that is pointed outwards, that flows outwards, which is why he created out of love, because it just poured out of him. We worship a self-giving God, not a self-obsessed God. God is love because God is Trinity. From from the beginning of time, God existed three in one. From before time began, a community of love, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Love literally spills out of God. And so God designed man for this kind of self-giving companionship. He had to make a companion for him, and so he did. He made Eve. When God made Eve, he looked back over all of creation. And then, then what did he say? It is very good. (laughs) Very good. And it has always been very good, a very good part of God's design that we would crave this this human intimacy and and thrive off of this self-giving love. Mm. In the 13th century, there was a Holy Roman Emperor named Frederick II, and he wanted to see what language babies would speak if no one ever taught them. 
It's an interesting question. And so he had nurses that were assigned to 50 babies, 50 babies. They would feed them and they would bathe them in absolute silence. No speaking, no eye contact, no lullabies or cuddles, just their absolute basic necessities. So what language did these babies end up speaking? Well, Frederick never found out because all of them died. Well, that's a tragic story. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. That really that really shows that need that we have for yeah, bonding with another human even before we understand what that even means. Right. These babies. Babies don't understand the concept of their, you know, their need for for other I mean other than they just are born needy. And yes. they just <laughs> I guess they do under I guess I shouldn't I should say that. They do understand their need because all they really do is they need. cry when they need something. <laughs> yeah, but they don't understand uh the relational dynamics of that as much, I guess, but um it really emphasizes that that need for that relationship, even at that young of an age. To love is human. And clearly, humans, we suffer when we're deprived of love, when we're deprived of touch. In fact, touch affects our physical and our mental development, creating detachment disorders and other psychological defenses if we don't experience it properly as a child. Interestingly enough, children who are not touched or are more likely to be victims of such sexual assault because they don't actually understand what proper touch is. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That we actually need that category of proper love mm-hmm. and touch. Yeah, to know how to relate in the world well. Mm. Yeah, we don't just need to be around people. We need to have intimate connections with people. In fact, when, when we're lonely, if you think about it, we're rarely actually alone. Yeah, that's true. Like the feeling of loneliness haunts us the most when we're surrounded by people and feel no connection to them. We feel misunderstood. We feel like no one cares. You know, we can live in crowded cities, walk down crowded streets. People are just a phone call away. Social media is full of everyone constantly online and interacting. We can be in this room full of people and yet feel all alone. Like there's no one who understands us, no one who gets us, no one that wants to be close to us. Because loneliness is an indication of interaction without intimacy. Hmm. You have interaction, but you have no depth of intimacy. Hmm. Coronavirus, I think, has really shown us how loneliness can affect our physical as well as our mental health. Uh, And some of these things include you know boosting our stress level Mm. triggering depression and suicide yes and we've seen it a lot in In, the elderly population decreasing memory and spurring the progression of alzheimer's disease as they've really been kind of isolated and cut off from other people uh as well as it's been a huge contributor to substance abuse increasing yeah they're coming forward with a lot of those statistics um after the pandemic of how our mental health has really been affected because of this isolation and, um, yeah, the loneliness that sets in because our lives are meant to be shared. And we, we put up walls so often that become barriers to true intimacy and vulnerability. Shame, 
secrets that you're keeping hidden can keep you from being fully known or understood by someone. We talked about that last week, even with sexual intimacy with your spouse, Mm. that you might not be feeling the closeness that we discuss and talk about, not because of of sexual sin or baggage in your past, but because of any unconfessed secret Mm -hmm. that you're keeping. But that shame can really be a barrier to intimacy. Mm-hmm. Unforgiveness is another. Ooh, yeah, that's that a huge one. You don't let your walls down because they, you think that they don't deserve it. And it can keep you from having a deep, meaningful relationship with someone because of the bitterness you're harboring in your heart. Or mistrust. Maybe someone has hurt you and you feel like they might hurt you again. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so you you no longer trust them, so you don't feel close to them. Mm. Or it could even be someone else that has hurt you and that just uh, leaks out into other relationships because yes. you kind of assume then that someone else is going to hurt you, so you hold back. I was just talking to someone that said how their daughter really mistreats men mm. and that stemming from... You know, men being disappointing and abusive in their life. So now as a category, like they're just mistrusting and mean to all men. Hmm. Don't let themselves get close to any man because of the way that men in their past had treated them, Mm. which is absolutely devastating. Mm -hmm. Like you said, that mistrust can from someone else can transfer Um, domination, actually, as women, Mm. thinking that in order to maintain our power, that we don't need no man. Mm. And it it becomes a wall that keeps us from being real and raw and authentic and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Because we want to keep that position of seeming like we're the strong woman. Mm. And that's very popular in society. Detachment. That it's just easier not to feel. Indulgence. Anything that can make us feel good. We go to other things to make us feel good instead of relationships. Yeah. 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 And so we we kind of become numb and don't realize what we're missing because we're using other coping mechanisms to indulge in. But, um, which actually can manifest themselves in forms of addiction. Yeah. Like, you know, pornography is one of the obvious examples when talking about sexuality. But I think that, you know, or um, like last week when we were talking about erotica, masturbation, those things that we can turn to instead of a true intimate Mm -hmm. relationship. But I think also other addictions like uh, alcoholism. Mm -hmm. I mean, entertainment. Yeah. Yes. I I think that's a huge one in our culture with all the streaming services and everything that we have. I know I find myself sometimes. I'm just like, I would I go on YouTube to find something for school related and I end up like watching, you know, movie trailers or just I'll be, where did <laughs> this rabbit hole even lead? Yeah. And then you spent all this time in front of your screen. Well, and it might instead of building into relationships. And it might even be like in the background. Mm-hmm. Like I might be doing something else, but it makes you less effective multitasking. Mm. So I'm not as efficient in what I'm doing. Yeah. And then um, the last one I've written down here is fear. And what I mean by fear 
is sometimes people feel like they need to perform or meet a certain expectation in order to earn someone's love. And so they're afraid of just truly being themselves. And so mm. they're kind of always on edge. And that's that's really fear-driven, mm. um, that you have to do something a certain way in order to please somebody else. And that, <laughs> ironically, um, the very thing you're trying to earn, which is love, is the very thing that that keeps you from. Because you you can't have true intimacy, you know, faking it, being fearful, not being who you truly are. So whether it's defensiveness or self-protective measures, you know, these come out of a place, um, and this might seem very harsh, because there are boundaries that can be properly ordered and necessary. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But more often than not, we become defensive and self-protective out of a place of self-centeredness mm. instead of self-giving love. Mm. And so you have to ask yourself, when have my boundaries actually just become barriers? Mm. And that takes wisdom yeah, to navigate. Because by putting ourselves first, we're actually putting love last. So true. And that is kind of a harsh word to swallow, especially if you're a person who needs boundaries. Like there is a necessity for healthy emotional boundaries so yeah. you don't get taken advantage of. But to ask yourself and be honest, are these boundaries just self-protective measures and barriers that I'm not willing to give of myself Hmm. in love? Because the ideal for love is to self-giving people, not to self-obsessed people. Mm -hmm. And when you have one person that's self-giving and one person that's self-obsessed, that's where abuse takes place. Yeah. And so the ideal is two self-giving individuals. Mm-hmm. And again, we realize that sin has affected this whole world. And it's affected our relationships, our sexuality, our emotions. And so this can become very difficult to navigate. Mm-hmm. But we have to speak of what the biblical ideal is and what the biblical pattern is. So to there's something the to live for. Yes, yep. casting that vision. And I think it's a vision that our world can't understand Hmm. because our world only understands putting self first putting self-pleasure first true and so it has approached sexuality not with a healthy emotional mindset but actually with a consumer mindset yeah definitely i would definitely agree with that in fact you you looked up this article about the the 110 best sex tips yeah so oh man just when you're looking for for uh, any type of love advice and when you're married, any any type of, uh, you know, and to just keep things fun and <laughs> like looking for, for the, those kind, that kind of advice. Tips and for the bedroom. Tips for the bedroom. Yeah. Uh, Cosmopolitan and really any magazine that's found in a grocery store line is not not great reading not not great source material just not great you think like these are the experts on sex right like they're the world like experts on sex so 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 why don't i go there and they'll help me you know (laughs) no no definitely not so uh the 110 best sex tips from cosmopolitan magazine 
March 2021 article. Number one, watch horny TikTok videos. It's like, that's embarrassing. That is. It's very, I mean, no offense to any of our younger listeners, but it's just very like adolescent. (laughs) Like, like, can you imagine being an adult? I just don't know. And to be like, go watch video. To watch horny, even the language of it is like, seriously. Yes. You're a horn dog. I'm just like, this is just juvenile. Yeah. It's just, it's not showing the respect that sex really deserves. Right. Even just in, in how that is phrased. Number two, know the difference between a cheap sex toy and a good one, which is just, it is such a consumer mindset. Yeah. And I think also goes, probably goes to show you something that's also also just true in general about sex in our culture is that when it's looked at as something that's just so consumable Mm. it's like a person isn't just enough right like you have to have other accoutrements and things Okay, okay, but hold up. We're not saying that you can't ever have anything extra added to your bedroom experience. Oh, no. No. I mean, different people are going to have different convictions on that. And we're not, you know, demonizing lingerie or even we're not even demonizing sex toys. But when when you become dependent. Yes. When you become dependent or you're looking to that for your source of pleasure. Yes. And fulfillment. And it's not just something that might be, you know, that you and your husband have agreed on for fun or whatever, but it's it's what you're looking for for your because you're not getting that satisfaction right. actually from your each husband other. and mm-hmm. from each other and you're looking to an outside source for it that it becomes wrong. Mm. Yeah. It, it, it becomes... Um, a way that you've deviated from God's design and intention for this intimate bonded experience. Mm-hmm. So, you know, adding some extra fun to that experience that you're enjoying together, or is it becoming a crutch? Yeah, um, to replace the lack of of intimacy in your in your relationship, mm-hmm. and and that's a place where the Holy Spirit can speak into with with conviction. Yes, yes. If you're not having that deep actual intimate experience right. recognizing that sex is more than just physical and mm-hmm. you're looking at it just for physical pleasure mm-hmm. then the, the physical is going to kind of fall, fall flat mm. and i think that that's revealed here in the top three of 110 these were right. the top three that you need you need more mm-hmm. in order to actually be satisfied yeah and it's not it's not just the top three i read through the list and i think i couldn't get further than you know the top 25 that you know, in the in those first twenty five or so, there's not a single mention of any sort of mutual pleasure. I think that's what stood out to me the most. A loving and serving. Yeah. There's there's nothing about how you can really help make your partner's sexual experience the best it can be. Hmm. It's really all about your self satisfaction hmm. and how you can make it the best for yourself. And because of this, you know, it, it's no surprise, like you said, that we're losing that intimacy in our sexual encounters in our world today. It's the shakab that we talked about yeah, a few episodes ago. Version. 
Yeah, that just strips away the true depth of intimacy. Just the exchange of bodily fluids. And it's just the exchange of bodily fluids. That's the Hebrew definition. And when this was studied in in a in a survey, kind of polling, and I, I don't, I didn't actually write down if it was Gallup who did this poll, um, but they surveyed each generation and noticed a shift in the way that each generation thought about sexuality or sex Hmm. and it has it according to the the survey each generation views it less as an expression of intimacy and more of a personal experience Hmm. it's increasingly seen as pleasurable um and important journey or part of your journey of self-fulfillment and you know, this follows suit with what psychology classes are teaching with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that the purpose of life is self-actualization and fulfillment. That that's like your greatest tip top of your pyramid. That's that's the highest point of the triangle is that you would be self-satisfied. But biblically speaking, that's not what our sexuality is about. That's not what sex is about. It's not just about this selfish pleasure i mean yes is it pleasurable absolutely but it's oriented towards the other and the ideal is that each of you in mutual self-giving would be seeking to please and pleasure each other in fact in a charming future of the old testament law sandwiched between laws about finances and divorce there's actually this law forbidding a newlywed husband to be drafted to the military for any government service for one year deuteronomy 24 5 says if a man has been recently married he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him for one year he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to his wife who he's married that is a really precious law. When we think about the Old Testament law, we just think about, I don't know, just like dredging through it as one of the parts of the Bible we have to kind of read and study in order to have a, a, a whole view of what the Bible is and has to say. But that one actually is delightful. I know. It actually says that husbands, like, it's your job to bring happiness to your wives. That's such an others-oriented, self-giving perspective yeah. of sex and marriage and i think truly yeah paints that vision for this this mutual enjoyment yeah and we uh, we really we really live in a time that is maritally corrosive Mm. i mean we live in a time and even we even see this creeping into into the church um you know we get busy with our own schedules and so many of our church activities are are separated and divided out into, you know, men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies instead of like studying the Bible, you know, together. And and that's not anything to dis, you know, going to a man, man's Bible study or woman's Bible study, but that shouldn't take, that should be an addition. It shouldn't mm. take the place of studying the Bible together as spouses together. Yeah. Um, we serve at church different nights of the week because yeah. we're involved in different ministries instead of, you know, plugging into a ministry together. And that's not every husband and wife. I've known couples that are intentional about serving together, but it's easy right. to be pulled in all these different directions, be pulled in all these different directions and feel like you're doing good. And it's, and, and, and I'm not 
you know, saying that you're not. Right. But you want you want to try and protect the opportunities that you have to be able to spend together and serve mm. together together. You know, we can, you know, there's there's context, there's time for discipling other people. I have a couple young girls that, you know, I'm personally kind of mentoring right now and obviously it wouldn't really be appropriate to be doing that with my husband. Right. <laughs> uh, and that's something, you know, that I'm really happy that I'm able to do, but then we also talk to friends together. You know, yeah. about their marriages. We give counsel to, you know, our friends together. We get invested in people's lives together. And it's not just like I have my own group of friends and he has his own group of friends. Um, but we're intentional about making sure that our friend groups overlap. Uh, it's easy to end up eating dinner at separate times because of work schedules and hobby schedules and yeah. kids schedules. And we just don't spend that time together mm. really either serving together or alone together enjoying each other to really just explore and get to know each other yeah and enjoy each other honestly some of the best advice my husband got about our wedding night was from his father um he told him kind of similar to that ancient jewish law like hey beginning of your marriage like just focus on your bride don't even worry about what you want Make it all about her. Like, learn what she likes, and you'll have a lifetime to enjoy it. And he, he was specifically talking about our sexual experience together. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah. Go dad. Go dad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, who has a father-in-law like that? It's like... <laughs> you do. <laughs> I know. It was great. Because he did. He took that to heart. And um, that speaks to, you know, relational intimacy as a foundation that you can build on for the rest of your marriage when you're truly invested in those those beginning weeks, months, you know, the honeymoon. We're huge fan of honeymoons for that reason. Like, mm. I encourage young couples, like, go on the honeymoon now. Like, don't delay. Don't wait. Go on that honeymoon to just have time to learn and explore each other. Because that advice, while it was given to my husband, and it was true for, for him to learn his bride. The goal would be that's also true of the bride mm-hmm. learning her husband, right? Like that I was also seeking to learn what my husband enjoyed. And so there was that mutual self-giving and we were seeking to give each other pleasure. And I think we see this in the Song of Solomon. Like if you if you read it, what you'll notice is that they spend an exorbitant amount of time praising each other's bodies. Not their own. They're not talking about how incredible their bodies are or in- how incredible even their bodies feel in the act of sex. Mm. They spend the majority of their time praising the other's body huh. and really focusing on the other. And this is our poetic, beautiful you know, book of poetry on sex. It's like a beautiful model for how we can build that intimacy. You know, she says that that his head is as the most fine gold, that, that his eyes are as eyes of doves, his cheeks are a bed of spices, his hands are as gold rings set with the barrel, his legs pillars of marble, his mouth most sweet, altogether lovely. I mean, when was the last time you talked to your husband like that? Like, told him all these just incredible things. 
about him. That's what our sexual experience should be. Making our focus of attention the other. Not not selfishly focused just on when we want, on, excuse me, on what we want, when we want it. But if you and your husband are focused on loving each other the best way possible, then you will be telling each other what you enjoy as a way for them to love you better. Not so the goal is I can just feel better, but so that they can love me better because that's what they're aiming to do. Does that make sense? Yeah. Then telling each other what you're enjoying isn't a selfish pursuit, but it's actually uh, helping the other in their pursuit of loving you. Mm. So this type of self giving and mutually enjoying love is true of our experience of pleasure in sex. And it's also should be true of our experience in sharing life with each other uh, as a husband and a wife. That that our sexuality, that our, that our sex is mirroring the oneness and the mutual self-giving and self-serving that we have as husband and wife in our life because of the covenant. Our bodies belong to one another in, in a covenant bond of marriage and, and represent Christ and the church. We've, we've spoken about that in previous episodes, that just as Christ mm-hmm. wouldn't divorce the church, our oneness is meant to be inseparable. We are meant to have one shared life with our spouse. And we see verses throughout scripture that relate to um, h- how this oneness uh, spills over into the marriage bed. Like 1 Corinthians 7, 5, it says, do not deprive each other. And it's talking about sexual intercourse here. It says, accept by mutual consent and for a time so you may devote yourselves to prayer. But focusing on that that part, this is don't deprive each other mm. of this, this sexual intimacy, this oneness that you're to experience. Matthew 19, 6, it says, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Our God is the God of covenant. He is the one that makes us one. And he doesn't break covenants. He's always faithful. Mm. And so our marriages are to show this type of unity. 1 Corinthians 7, 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. And in the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Yeah, it's in this mutually loving and lasting covenant of marriage that sex, it's really, it's designed to be a safe space. I like that. We seek comfort. And we confide in one another. And we, we see this illustrated in the story of David and Bathsheba after the death of their son. In Second Samuel 12, 24, it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and made love to her. And she gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. Now, we think of their story as one of illicit sex, but... It's actually a story of great redemption. It, it, it does have illicit sex in it, but that's not the end of the story because David is repentant and he's forgiven. There's consequences for his actions, but he's forgiven. Mm. And he goes on to make beautiful love to his wife, comforting her with his with close connection in that time of deep pain where they both were grieving what a beautiful example of sexual intimacy yeah it really is and it 
And uh, Proverbs 5 also shows us these two types of love in sharp contrast. So a a self-serving love versus a self-giving love. So there's the man who drinks from his own well, and then there's the one whose streams overflow into the public squares. And that drinking from your own well and your or versus your streams overflowing, that's actually a sexual euphemism. So uh, it it's describing a man... The second one, it's it's describing a man without a place of belonging. So the one whose streams are overflowing into the public square, he doesn't have a place that he belongs. He's forever wandering aimlessly in the streets, unfulfilled, unsatisfied, in contrast to a man who's found his place to belong and is deeply satisfied in the intimacy and security of marital love. So Proverbs 5 verse Starting in verse 15, it says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. So this is a man who has spent a lifetime still enjoying the wife of his mm, youth. I love that. That is such a beautiful picture. And again, a vision for what God has created and designed our sexuality to be and what our sex lives in marriage can be when we follow God's good design. And like Amber pointed out, even with David and Bathsheba, though there was illicit sexual sin, they were forgiven mm-hmm. when they were repentant. And then he was able to love his wife in that deep, special intimacy. And so showing and seeing that God has a beautiful vision is necessary um, for inspiring ourselves and, and the next generation with how we can live out God's good design. I love this quote about intimacy from a book. I have not read it. I don't endorse it. Um, but I love the quote when I googled quotes about intimacy. And it's from an author named Ellen Hopkins. And she said, you're like the ocean, pretty enough on the surface, but dive down into your depths and you'll find beauty most people never see. Hmm. That's very poetic. It's poetic and it's a beautiful picture of each one of us as an ocean of intimacy waiting to be known and explored. And we've said it before and we'll say it again that we were all made for intimacy. Mm. We were all made for companionship and we were all made for covenant. Mm-hmm. We have to remember that Yada refers to covenantal love, not only in the marriage bed, but also the covenantal love that we share with God. And we continue to return to that because that is the most beautiful display of intimate love, whether you're married or not. When you're married, you need to remember that at times when your spouse is disappointing, when your marriage is disappointing, that God is your ultimate fulfillment. If you're tempted to make an idol of marriage, that God is the one who it's all about. Or if you're single listening to this podcast and you think, man, they talk a lot about sex. Well, you probably are listening to the podcast for that reason. But this podcast is also for you as a single man or woman who has made it this far into the episode and is wondering, okay, how can I have this covenantal 
love and intimacy that you're talking about if I'm not married? Well, remember, our sexuality isn't just about sex. We may think that when you tell a teenager how great sex is going to be in marriage, that they'll just leave really excited about their wedding day someday. But in reality, they need to know what they can do with their sex drives. Every single person needs to know what they can do with their sex drives, no matter how old they are. Mm. Because our sex drives are all about our emotional need for intimacy. Yeah, And you get to a point, especially when you're not a teenager anymore, where you might not just still be looking forward to your wedding day because you might actually be questioning if your wedding day will even ever come. Hmm. And so you need to know, why did God then design me with a sex drive? Just to torture me? <laughs> oh, man. And in our, uh, our, our current culture... You know, we're really... And the answer to that is no. Yes, the answer <laughs> to that is no. He did not design you with a sex drive to torture you. He designed you with a sex drive to draw you into intimacy with him and with others. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't have to be sexual in nature no. in order to be fulfilling. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. And we're sort of losing that ability to have intimate friendships without them being sexualized right. in our current cultural climate. There's definitely a crisis in our youth that they're associating intimacy of friendships with sexual attraction. And it's one of the contributing factors for same-sex relationships. Obviously, there's lots of complex things that go into in, into that. But one of them definitely is this, this uh, push to uh, explore, experiment. If you feel you know really close to someone, then it might be because you're attracted to them. So you should... You know, explore that avenue because we feel safe and vulnerable with somebody that we know well. We kind of confuse that sometimes for a sexual attraction to them because, you know, safety, vulnerability, that is a part of our sexuality. It contributes to that overall sexuality dynamic. We need to have deep, intimate friendships that are God-honoring, that tap into that need for relationship without becoming sexualized. But how do we do this? Well, we, we have to be intentional about keeping God at the center of all of our deep, meaningful relationships, whether they're with the same sex or the opposite sex. And we can have those kinds of relationships in the church community. The church is a covenantal community. Yes. And so if you're looking for covenant love, the church is a place where covenant love can be horizontally experienced. Hmm. You don't just join a church. And and this is like a profound concept for the American church because we think of church as like, well, I go there and I receive a teaching and I drink uh-huh. a cup of coffee and I might talk to a few people. And I join it if I like it, but I leave if I don't. And if I'm really good, then I'm going to get involved and volunteer in something. But that's not the church that the scripture is talking about. We're not just talking about a building that you frequent. We're talking about the body of Christ that you are joined to by covenant. This is your new family, brothers and sisters, united in deep, meaningful relationships. This is the hope that we have of intimacy 
not just vertically with Christ, but horizontally with his body here on earth. Mm. We are to have deep, intimate connections Mm -hmm. with those who love God and speak our language. Like, have you ever met somebody and immediately you're speaking the same language because they're a sister in Christ? Yep. They're a brother in Christ. And you're just like, man, I feel connected to you Mm -hmm. on a different level. Because as soon as you find out they're a Christian, it's like there's some common out, there's some common ground between you that just exists even though you're strangers even though you're in a totally new place you know away from home you can be you know going to a new school and college and feel like you're all alone and then suddenly you have this bond that is a covenant bond of the christian community and paul referred to timothy with this type of language as as a kindred spirit he called him in philippians 2 20 David and Jonathan in 1 Samuel 20, 23, um, when they say the Lord is between you and me forever. And I think it's sad, actually, if you're unaware of this, David and Jonathan sometimes are, um, their their story is kind of perverted and warped and people look at them and be like, well, they must have been homosexual then because they were so close. Yeah. What a sad way of twisting a deep and intimate friendship mm-hmm. that says the Lord is between us. And they make it into something it's not. Like mm-hmm. Amber, you were saying, we, we sexualize mm-hmm. deep, meaningful friendships. But God created friendships to, to honor him and to give us that, that deep bond that we can experience. Marriage, obviously, is a covenantal love that reflects God's love for his bride. But we have to remember first and foremost that the church is his bride. Yeah. That that we are one because we are one body. We're his body. We're the body of Christ. And so Christians, first and foremost, belong not in covenant love to their spouse, but to their covenant Lord. Mm. Romans 14, 7 through 8 says, none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. Whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Or Romans 12, 5, it says, So we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Which I think is why it's such a travesty when the church is divided. You know, when we fail to come together, we, we really need to make unity a priority. That really needs to be a focus and a priority in our churches because of the great responsibility that we that we that we bear mm. in portraying that unifying love. Mm-hmm. And Christianity has a has a unique way of capturing that unifying love in a way that no other religion of this world can. Because if you think about it, we have this deep longing for love. From the time that we're little, that nothing else can fulfill. Not fame, not fortune, not power, not food, not even pleasure. We want someone that can relate to us, who can understand us, someone who can touch us and know us. And this desire for love should draw us to Christianity in a way that that no other religion can compete. Because Christianity is the only religion where a personable and fully human God can infinitely love us through the physical hands and feet 
of his body still present here on the earth. Mm. Jesus may have ascended to heaven, but he promised to be here with us by sending his Holy Spirit. And now his Holy Spirit inhabits the church. As one body. The individuals of the church as one body. And so we are the hands and the feet of a loving God who can love on each other. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really one of the amazing things about our God. We're loved by him vertically, but we're also loved by him horizontally. When our community is the church, it is actually a way God loves us and gives us the community we were designed for. And I'm just going to kind of wrap this up with a quote by Pascal Emmanuel Gobry. And it says, Christianity proclaims that this infinite love of a human person is available through Jesus Christ, who is both man and God. The church that Jesus established on earth to proclaim his love and his message not only proclaims the infinite love of the human person, Jesus Christ, but also proclaims that he can be touched and felt and experienced through his church. Mm. And isn't that what the world needs? What the world needs now is love, sweet love. And we can experience that through the body of Christ. Mm. Amen. Well, that is all for our episode today on sexuality and our emotions and how we can find that deep intimacy in the marriage bed, but also in the covenant love and community of the church where those deep longings for love can be fulfilled. It's part of God's beautiful design. Until next time, know and be known.